Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Sullivan. Today on our program, remembering Canada's 17th Prime Minister, John Turner, the passing of an icon. I believe that the highest calling in life, next to the ministry of God, is public office. Athlete, scholar, attorney general, prime minister, fighter, John Turner dies at the age of 91. Today, former Prime Minister Paul Martin joins us to discuss the life and legacy of John Turner. And then, great expectations? It is going to be an important moment for setting a course for our country that is going to focus on keeping ourselves safe, uh, but also getting through this, this challenge uh, even better than before. The government unveils its critical throne speech in just three days. Is more help coming for Canadians and businesses struggling to stay afloat as the second wave of COVID hits? The Minister of International Trade and Small Business, Mary Ng, joins us on that and lots more. Then, show me the money. Now Canada has to be there for Alberta and for other provinces that are facing uh, the greatest economic and fiscal challenge since the Depression. Canada's premiers demand another $28 billion a year for more health care and billions more for infrastructure. Can the federal government afford to say yes? Alberta Premier Jason Kenney joins us on why it's needed. Plus, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole and Bloc leader Yves-Francois Blanchet both test positive for COVID-19. With no plan for virtual voting yet, how will this impact a vote on the speech from the throne? This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. I'd like to be remembered for someone who gave half his adult life to the service of his country, that I focused the interest of the country and the attention of the country on the trade issue, which related to our integrity, our independence, our sovereignty as a nation. He was destined for the highest public office, Olympic qualifying athlete, Rhodes Scholar, charismatic lawyer. John Turner was long predicted to be the prime minister, but no one thought it would only be for 79 days, the second shortest tenure in Canadian history. But that hardly defines the man. Before then, he'd served as the justice minister, the finance minister to Pierre Trudeau, to whom he first lost the liberal leadership race. But Mr. Turner eventually quit politics after a decade in cabinet before returning to take on the job as the prime minister. That he almost immediately lost an election to Brian Mulroney 11 weeks later didn't stop him at all. He stayed on as the opposition leader. Mr. Turner fought against free trade, the fight of his life, as he called it. He lost that too. Still, his integrity, his passion, rebuilt a decimated Liberal Party. So what was his legacy? To talk more about John Turner, we're joined now by the former Prime Minister, Paul Martin. And Mr. Martin, always an honor to have you on the program. Condolences for the loss of your longtime friend, John Turner. He ran against your father and Pierre Trudeau once. What was your memory of him back then? Well, I actually met John Turner through my father. I mean, he was closer in age to me, I guess, than he was to my dad. But uh, he had gone into public life very early. And my father, I remember my father coming home one day and saying what a how brilliant he was and how he was going what a future he was going to have but in you you talked about that the race against my father and in in the one that uh, Pierre Trudeau won let me just tell you a story and I think it does give you an indication of what kind of a person he was um he and my dad knew each other um and were friends uh they ran against each other uh the difference between uh the two of them in that race that Pierre Trudeau won was that my father had been in public life for a long time. 
And it was very clear that he was never again going to run uh, for the leadership of the Liberal Party. John Turner was much younger, and uh, all the avenues were open to him. And so there was a difference in terms of how one received it, where, where one was with, with one's family. And so after the whole convention was over, and we, right, we were sitting with my mother and my sister and, my, and Sheila and a bunch of us at, at, at the apartment in Ottawa, um, all, I got a phone call. And the phone call was from John. And he said, you know, Paul, why don't you and Sheila and Nell, that was my mother and all of you, come on over tomorrow for brunch. And I, I said, yes, we will, without even checking. Because I realized what John was doing, and I also knew what the reaction of my father would be. And it was such a nice thing of him to do that the day after the convention, John Turner's career very, very much on the rise, my father coming uh, uh, certainly to the close as a, an elected uh, mm. uh, political figure, and John thought, let's get him over here and let's talk and let's make life good. And that was John Turner. John Turner was always able to reach out to people. He and my father were good friends, but John didn't have to do that, and I've never forgotten it. It's a, it's a beautiful story about, as they say, he, as many people have said about him, he didn't have enemies, he had opponents. Um, now, it's interesting, the, the connection between finance ministers. I think about the current finance minister, Krista Freeland, saying she's consulting with you on the upcoming budget. Did you, when you were the finance minister, ever consult with Mr. Turner when you were dealing with those deficit, deficit uh, cuts of the 90s? What was your relationship like with him? Well... I wouldn't have consulted so much on the on, on the cuts. This was uh, we were in a very very different world. But I did would have talked to, to John about what Canada could do internationally in some of the international institutions uh, that were that, that existed. The the G six, for instance, or um, so, uh, no, there were a number of financial institutions flowing from the United Nations, flowing from other organizations. And I really did want to get my, I wanted to get his perspective on him, and he was very, very good. Mr. Martin, he, I mean, it's a, he's a fascinating figure. I mean, his career is legendary. Uh, let's go to sort of chapter three in his life, which was uh, the free trade fight with Mr. Mulroney. He, he called it the fight of his life. He said history would vindicate him. Although since then, liberals have thoroughly embraced free trade. Was Mr. Uh, Turner wrong on that, and how did he... he how did that impact the Liberal Party and, and the evolution of it? Well, I think it, it, obviously, it obviously had an impact. What, what John Turner did in that is he, he along with Brian Mulroney, give, give Brian credit as well, made the trade debate a very important debate. At that time, uh, I mean, trade's always important, but the recognition that supply chains were on the rise which nobody had ever heard about them at that time, but um, unless you unless you were in business, that in fact there, there were a whole bunch of newer countries that were coming up. There, there wasn't just a rising China, but there was a, ra a rising Asia. Um, that the European Union um, was coming was was getting its act together, although they also <laughs> um, lost some of that act. And I think what John Turner did was to make it very clear that as we looked ahead, trade, one way or the other, was going to be a major debate. 36 million people in Canada competing with countries of two to 300 million. 
That's a very different ball game. And John, and John Turner was, I think, uh, one of the people who made that happen. Yeah, it's a, it's it's an extraordinary. Uh, it was an extraordinary debate. I really defined. I'm sorry uh, defined, about that. Phone. That's all right. We know you're busy on on, on a busy uh, Sunday morning. People want to hear from from you, Mr. Martin, and we're we're grateful that you're spending some time with us. What was interesting about him was when he lost that election. You know, he served what 79 days in office. He he just kept going. What is? I mean, you've been there. Uh, what does it tell you about the man that he didn't hang it up after that defeat? That he went into that election knowing that was a long shot after years of liberal rule. What does it tell you that he stayed on as leader of the opposition? First of all, it told me that he's got gut, had guts, uh, and he certainly did. The second thing is that he 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 was not in it for on the short term. That he understood the bigger picture. And he, understood, and he understood that Rome wasn't built in the day. Then what you had to do is you, you made progress uh, on Monday and then you made progress again on Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, he, did not, he was not there to get his name in the papers. He was not there to get on television. He was really there because he believed certain things very strongly and he wanted to accomplish them. Ms. Martin, before I let you go, um, and I, we appreciate you being here, uh, is there one memory or, or, or the legacy of Mr. Turner that maybe politicians today, I know politicians like Christopher Freeland, they're still consulting uh, people like you, former prime ministers, former finance ministers for advice. What is the legacy of your friend, Mr. Turner? And is there one memory you'd like to share with us? The one point that I would, I, I guess, accentuate is that he, he understood Canada's place in the world. And he understood what phenomenal a phenomenal change we could make this was something that i felt very strongly and so i really asked him what his experiences had been because he had been there long before me in terms of how we handled how we handled countries how we handled people who weren't going to listen to us and how we made them listen to us and i've got to say that he was a pretty good teacher he was a pretty good teacher uh, someone who served our country very well, uh, as you do, have and continue to do. And uh, Mr. Martin, we very much appreciate you joining us on a busy morning. We're sorry for your loss. Uh, your thoughts are uh, very important to the country right now. And thank you so much, sir. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about John Turner. Thank you, sir. John Turner passes away at the age of 91. We'll talk more about the legacy of Mr. Turner when another former finance minister, John Manley, joins us later in the program. But first... As COVID numbers rise across this country, will the federal government extend programs to help businesses? And why is free trade with China off the table? The Minister of International Trade and Small Business, Mary Ng, joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. many different elements in it in terms of uh, how we make sure that we're closing some of those gaps in our social safety net and supporting vulnerable Canadians, which we've seen all too clearly through this pandemic. So with COVID cases rising and some medical experts saying Canada is now in the second wave, certainly parts of it, will the government extend support for people and businesses until there's a vaccine, until we're out of the woods? 
Tens of thousands of businesses have already shut their doors since the pandemic started over six months ago. The unemployment rate is above 10%. Will the government extend, for example, the rental assistance program or revamp the wage subsidy to make it more accessible? Talk about that and lots more. We are now joined by Canada's Minister, not only of Small Business, but of International Trade, Mary Ng. Great to have you and I hope you and your loved ones are doing well, Minister. Uh, let's just start there with the second wave. Um, the CERB ends next month. Will your government be extending some key programs to help Canadians out as this pandemic continues long past what I guess was first expected? Our government has been clear. We have always said that we would continue to work with businesses and with Canadians as they navigate and manage through COVID-19. It is... Uh, it is alarming to see the cases uh, can, you know, climb. But we've always said that uh, this is something that Canadians can, in fact, uh, do something about. We've seen that done over the past many months. Businesses have sacrificed. Canadians have sacrificed. And we're going to keep working with businesses and with Canadians to make sure that we get through COVID-19. This is the top priority, managing and beating this virus and helping Canadians through it is what we need to keep doing. So let's get down to brass tacks. The Canadian Emergency Commercial Rent Assistance Program ends September. It's been extended. You guys said you won't extend it anymore. So I know it's not federal jurisdiction, but you've been a key part of it. You initially allocated close to $2.5 billion. The province is just over $500 million. There was not even a billion dollars of take-up. Not even a third of it had take-up. A, will it be extended and will it be redesigned so it doesn't, so more businesses actually use it? Well, what I can say about this is we've absolutely been listening to businesses and understanding this very important fixed cost. We know that for so many businesses, they are, um, their revenues are not back 100%. And this fixed cost, like rent, is 100%, which they are paying. So uh, while the current program uh, the extension is uh, the final extension is September. We absolutely are working with businesses, with our provincial and territorial colleagues, and um, and to businesses. We will continue to support you through COVID-19, and that work continues. Okay, so so just so I understand, because there's a sunset clause in a lot of these programs for support. Are you saying now, given the new data, the new second wave, the new number of cases, your government is going to rescind some of those sunset clauses, these, quote, this is the final extension, you could re-examine it and maybe extend these fundamental programs further? We've always been clear that we were going to continue to work with uh, businesses. So there really isn't a rescinding. It really is a how do we keep working with businesses to make sure that you are supported. We have, uh, you've seen us evolve our programs and our supports in keeping with the changing situation that is COVID. The wage subsidy, for example, will run until the end of the year. And, um, and our lending supports for the small business loan has been extended for a couple of more months. So this is just work that we're just gonna have to continue to do because managing, bridging through COVID-19, keeping Canadians healthy and safe is absolutely our top priority. Okay, so these third and final extensions, clearly you're, you're, you're saying that there could be more on that. But I, because you're also the Minister of International Trade, I want, and you were the point person on the aluminum tariffs, the Trump government backed off slapping that 10% tariff on Canada's aluminum industry, which was a ridiculous tariff anyway, as you, your government can, uh, kept saying. But they did it hours before you were set to announce retaliatory tariffs. Look, 
if the threat of retaliation worked against the United States and Donald Trump, will you use that threat against countries like China? They have slapped limits on, for example, canola and soybeans. Largely, that's been seen as a retaliation against Canada's holding the Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou on extradition charges. So if it's good for the U.S., will you start uh, slapping retaliatory tariffs on China? I think that... Uh Canadian businesses and industries and sectors should know from uh, me and our government that we will always stand up for them, always work uh, to make sure that uh, that their incredible, incredibly safe and high quality products uh, are able to continue to do business. I mean, our relationship with China is a multifaceted one. The 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 uh, the top priority for us, of course, uh, has to continue to be the release of uh, Michael Spaver and Michael Kovrig, as well as Clemency for Canadians. Uh, we're going to keep doing the work vigilantly uh, for Canadian businesses. Uh, and uh, in my own meetings with our, with our farmers, our producers, they know that the government of Canada will continue to work with them to make sure that they continue to get access to those very important markets. Minister, your government has long promised uh, for four or five years that you wanted a free trade deal with China. Now the foreign minister has told the Globe and Mail that's off the table. Why? Why have you guys taken that off the table? Well, um, we've been public about this. Um, I know that uh, not everyone sort of spends the time watching me uh, in question period, but uh, but a number of uh, just... You know, in the last session, I was really clear that the conditions for a free, a free trade agreement with China is not there. So this is not new. Um, we continue to uh, work very hard on a uh, top priority for Canada, and that is uh, on the release of Michael Spaver and Michael Kovrig, as well as clemency for the Canadian. But at the same time, um, I am the international trade minister. My job is to make sure that our Canadian businesses continue to have access to markets and to support their work, no matter where they okay, but but let me just marketplace. Uh, are you saying that you will not talk about a free trade deal with China until the two Michaels are released? I'm saying that right now uh, the conditions uh, we've been saying this uh, publicly that the conditions uh, aren't there right now for a free trade agreement. But uh, but I will continue to work with our producers and our businesses to make sure that they continue to have access. Uh, to markets, uh, including including in China, and to support their important work. But clearly, look, it might be human rights issues with the Uyghurs and the detentions. It might be what's happened in Hong Kong. It might be the fact that you've got the two Michaels in prison. But And so if human rights are one of the, quote, conditions that stop the free trade with China, why is Canada still doing record exports to Saudi Arabia? Three, almost $3 billion in light armored vehicles last year alone, record-breaking exports. Amnesty, Human Rights Watch have all chronicled deep human rights abuses there. We all know about the murder of the American journalist Mr. Khashoggi. How does your government justify trade for light armored vehicles that are allegedly being used in the conflict in Yemen right now? Why are we still exporting to Saudi Arabia? Is that going to change? Well, the situation in Yemen is one of deep concern for our government. And uh, we believe that um, a political um, uh, solution is uh, necessary to end that conflict. I would also uh, I want to assure Canadians Canada has acceded to the uh, to the arms treaty. We have one of the strictest export regimes, and our export um, uh, approvals process uh, is being done on a case by case basis. And in that, uh, enshrined in that, is a consideration for human rights. Uh, but minister, minister, respectfully, 
are you saying that you can justify through your export regime selling light armored vehicles that almost every human rights group is saying are being used in the conflict of Yemen to the government of Saudi Arabia after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi? You're saying you're comfortable with Canada as uh, the quote, Canada is back. You're comfortable with increasing our military exports to Saudi Arabia as the international trade minister? Well, I'm saying that uh, we are deeply concerned about the situation in Yemen. I'm also saying that uh, Canada um, it, we, you know, has a strong and one of the strongest and rigorous uh, systems for exports and that, uh, and that our export uh, permits uh, are reviewed on a case-by-case basis and that human rights is absolutely a part of that. And, um, is it and ironic, though, reason- but just to be fair, is it ironic with all that being said that we're increasing military exports to Saudi Arabia? So I guess you're okay with that. I'm saying that, uh, that we will continue to be uh, vigilant in our in our exports, um, in our exports regime, and it is also why Canada has acceded to the Arms Trade Treaty, uh, and human rights is at the center of uh, of that obligation. All right, I got to leave it there. Uh, International Trade Minister and Minister of Small Business Marion, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Appreciate it very much. Thanks so much, Evan. Good to talk to you. Coming up next, the premiers make their pitch for big dollars from the prime minister. What will they get? And is the premier of Alberta ready to pick a fight over billions? He says. Alberta is owed. We'll find out next. Jason Kenney joins us. Stay right here with Question Period. Today, for every dollar spent on COVID-19 response, 87 cents has come from the government of Canada. Let me be clear. The federal government has been and will continue to be there to support the provinces and territories. Big money demands for health care. Four of Canada's premiers came to Ottawa on Friday with a massive ask, an increase of $28 billion a year in health care transfers, meaning instead of just covering just over 20% of spending, the federal government would cover about 35%. Oh, right. They also want about $100 billion over 10 years for infrastructure. Look, the government has already given provinces $19 billion for the Safe Start Fund, but premiers, I guess they want a lot more. And with a projected deficit of over $350 billion already, can the federal government afford to meet these provincial demands? And will things like universal pharmacare be enough? Let's find out. Joining me now is Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. Uh, Premier Kenney, uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program. I appreciate it. This is a big ask that the premiers want from the federal government who are facing their own $350 billion deficit. Is this money on top of the $19 billion the federal government has already given the provinces for the safe restart? Yeah, this is uh, about long-term support for Canadian healthcare, it's the $19 billion was a one-time expenditure related to uh, the COVID crisis, but frankly doesn't come close to covering provincial expenditures in that area. Our message, uh, unanimously, 13 provinces and territories, different regions and parties, is that the top two priorities of Canadians are uh, saving, protecting lives and livelihoods, healthcare and the economy. We wanted to make it Put our, our flag in the ground that this is the key federal national priority right now for, for Canadians. Um, and um, as opposed to some of the kind of 
priorities we've seen uh, floated as, as possibilities over the past three weeks out of Ottawa. Well, so let's talk about those. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, for example, has said, I think uh, universal pharmacare is a big deal. Some say there's a... So what about that? What if they said, look, um, we want universal pharmacare. And by the way, provinces, I know you want no strings attached. When Paul Martin had the quote fix for a generation in healthcare, he had strings attached on things like wait times. Would you be satisfied if they put billions of dollars in universal pharmacare to help people pay for drugs? Well, frankly, no, Evan, because there is a already many different approaches. Some provinces already have a quite generous pharmacare programs, others have virtually none at all. In Alberta, we have a unique need in, I believe, in mental health. We're surging uh, unprecedented resources to support people coping with mental health challenges. Uh, the federal government can be most helpful by coming to the table with its fiscal depth. Uh, many provinces, we are very constrained. I'll tell you, Evan, to be blunt, there were a few weeks there where we could, couldn't uh, sell Alberta government bonds. We weren't the only provincial right. government in this crisis to face that situation. The federal government is not so encumbered. And, and so really what we do need is that flexibility that allows us to address our local needs. Okay. Well, you, you know, was there any irony for you being in Ottawa with, you know, you're beside Doug Ford, a fiscal conservative, and Brian Pallister, and you, all conservatives, saying, hey, government, you're already in massive debt. Not only do we need $28 billion more for health care, because of the shortages, but we'd also like $10 billion a year more for um, infrastructure for 10 years. That's $100 billion, plus the $19 billion we already have, plus the fact that there's lots of infrastructure money that hasn't already been spent. Like, isn't there a moment where everyone's kind of like, wait, who's the conservative in the room here? You know, uh, Evan, I've never believed in what I've called begging bowl federalism. This is not begging. This is money that, uh, particularly with respect to fiscal stabilization, Albertans have paid into the system uh, for decades. We've contributed over $600 billion more through our federal taxes to the rest of Canada over the past 50 years than we've received back in transfers or federal benefits. Uh, and so we're, from my province's perspective, we're saying uh, we've done our part. We've been generous. And now in, our, uh, in a time of real significant need, particularly on the healthcare front, but also in the jobs front, we need to see some of that generosity returned. Let me just press back a bit on equalization. And first of all, I'm never going to diminish the pain Albertans are going through. It's been a perfect storm for the people of Alberta. I absolutely appreciate that pain and I, and I would never minimize it. But just on the equalization, and there's politics involved. You say Albertans have paid into it. There's, you don't pay into equalization. Alberta's had the highest per capita income, and by the way, it, it remains so in the country for years and that the tax goes into a fund that becomes equalization it's not like you've paid into it it's just that's the revenues that have been very high in alberta so, and i realize that you can't change the equalization but it's not like it's been unfair you were part of the the government that renegotiated it so i just wonder are you playing politics with this like it's alberta's getting ripped off when it, the system has worked for alberta in good times and you signed off on it well, Evan, uh, I, if you roll the tape back, I'm pretty sure I didn't say equalization. I said that Albertans have contributed through their federal taxes uh, $600 billion more to the rest of the Federation since 1960 than they received back in uh, federal transfers or benefits. And that is absolutely true. It's not just equalization. That's a big portion of that. But it's the whole system of fiscal, fiscal federalism. And yes, it's because uh, we have had higher incomes over mo most of that period. And we do not begrudge 
having been able to share much of our good fortune with the rest of Canada when times were good in my province and, let, and, and, and not so great in other parts of the country. But there is supposedly in this federation, there, there is a supposed to be, you know, the, the same federal government that transfers that money uh, to uh, have provinces is supposed to be there when provinces like resource-producing provinces suddenly find themselves uh, at the bottom of an economic cliff. Premier Kenny, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Evan. Coming up next on Question Period, massive lineups outside COVID test centers. Some in Ontario reaching capacity just minutes after opening. If people can't get a test quickly, is Canada ready to handle the second wave? And what will this mean for the upcoming speech from the throne? The scrum weighs in on that next. Stay right here with Question Period. This is a serious situation, folks. We will throw the book at you if you break the rules. And we can't afford to let a few rule breakers reverse all the hard work and progress the people of Ontario have made. Prepare to pay. That's one of the messages from Ontario Premier Doug Ford to those participating in large gatherings that have led to spikes in COVID-19 cases across his province. But that's not the only major problem the province and the country is facing. Coronavirus is still not under control. There are lineups at COVID testing centers so long people are being turned away. So with millions of kids back in school, patients fading, who's to blame for the testing nightmare? And how will the positive COVID test for Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, and we wish him and his family well, and Bloc leader Yves-Francois Blanchet, same wishes to him, impact the politics of not only tackling the virus, but of the vote in the upcoming speech from the throne. Let's bring in the scrum to discuss all that. Joyce Napier is here. CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief joins us. Tonda McCharles, senior reporter with the Toronto Star, is here. And our special guest for this round is a critical and palliative care doctor in Ottawa, Dr. Quadro Caramantang. He's also host of the podcast called Solving Healthcare. So we'll get it all done today, Doc. Great to have all of you here. Absolutely. You can solve healthcare. Doc, well, since you can solve healthcare, I'll start with you. Testing is a mess, and it's a big, big problem. And it, first, who's accountable, and what needs to happen here, doctor? I, you know, it's such a huge issue. Like, if we're going to get any sort of ability to get back to normal life, it all stems from testing. And, you know, there's a lot of places throughout the world right now that are getting rapid assessments, rapid tests, the results within minutes and i'm not sure what the lag is here in canada because i'll tell you this much like as a frontline staff this is one of the most important elements to be able to optimize care like to ensure that our our frontline staff are able to be at the bedside uh we need that capacity so um so important yeah it's important tonda but look you can blame any level of government municipal provincial and and federal but there's a political consequence here, right? Because uh, these are promises made and promises not lived up to by all sorts of governments. What, what's your take on this failure? Well, it beggars belief uh, that they're not ready for the second wave in the fall uh, when everyone was going to be going indoors and schools would restart and workplaces would restart. It's, it's incomprehensible to me. I sat in briefings in April with the public health agency's top doctors saying, oh, everybody be ready for a second wave in the fall. So I think it's a huge fail on the part of local, provincial and the federal uh, officials in this. 
And, um, you know, then to have the head of the public health agency step down for personal reasons on Friday. I mean, I think the government's really got to get their act, all levels have got to get their acts together. Uh, this is a huge problem and it's going to have a ripple effect in Parliament with those two leaders now down for the count. They're feeling well. But they're not going to be able to attend the throne speech even for the resumption of Parliament. Mm. It, it's it's it, the mind boggles. Yeah, and George, I will come to that in a minute. But just back to you, know, politicians have asked Canadians to make enormous sacrifices, right? Close your business, stay home, socially distance. In return, their part of the bargain is, don't worry, we're going to get up to speed on things like testing. But what's happening? Does it fray the social contract when people are waiting three, four, five hours in a lineup and they're furious at the governments? Does that start fraying the trust factor? Uh, it should. Uh, you know, they're used to a docile a uh, bunch of Canadians, we wait in line for operations, we wait in line to see a doctor. We're used to that. So I think they were banking on our patient and patients in our docility to say, well, you know, why are we behind everybody else here in Canada? Um, I think Canadians should get angry. I think they should, they should ask questions as we are asking them questions. Uh, because what happens if you're not feeling well and you figure, well, I need to go and get right. tested, and you can't. You just can't get tested. It is seven months into a pandemic. This should not happen, and we should not take it. And, uh, and, and we are taking it because we have no choice. And I think that politicians have taken advantage of our patients a little bit too long. Uh, doctor, what do you need to, I mean, everyone's looking at the speech from the throne. You're a frontline doctor. What do, what do governments need to give front, the frontline right now? What's the most urgent issue? Yeah, I mean, I got to say, you know, initially it was a lot of question about per personal protective equipment. And I got to say, there's been a lot of commitment to supply that. So that has, that has been safe. To me, it really, it does come down to rapid testing because to give you an example, with school going back to like with school reopening, when we have a staff member that can't get back to work because a kid might be sick, that they have the sniffles and they got to wait five hours in for their testing. Like that, those are people that are being pulled at the, from the bedside. And we need all hands on deck, especially if there's going to be a quote-unquote second wave. We need people to be ready. And yeah. so the testing is, it just comes, really comes down to testing. It's so important. Yeah, uh, and just quickly on um, how this has worked, Aaron O'Toole Tonda, he, he tried to get tested in Ontario. He was sent back, had to go to Quebec for that. That highlighted the testing issue. But now he's tested positive. Again, we hope he's okay. So is the leader of the Bloc Quebecois. There's no virtual voting yet. How could this impact a vote on the speech from the throne, which, could, which is a confidence vote, of course? Well, I think you're going to see all parties get their act together really quick. Um, the Conservatives up to now have opposed virtual voting, remote voting, electronic voting. But we're going to see, I think we have to pretty quickly, that they're going to agree to some form of that. I mean, one of their MPs called it last week, like voting on Tinder. Well, look, it, let's get serious. If every other workplace in Canada is forced to adjust, Parliament must adjust. So I think you'll see those changes happen very quickly this week. All right, Joyce, uh, what do you expect to see real quick on that? Uh, I, I agree with Tonda. I mean, they've got to get their act together. If we can do it, they can do it. They haven't been sitting. You know, they've been slacking a little bit uh, because we wanted to stay socially distanced and because that's the thing that everybody had to do. Um, they've had many months, just like testing, they've had many months to test their systems in the House of Commons. Um, you know, right. uh, for, for, for O'Toole, this is not very good because he is not well known 
This would have given him a chance to be front and center asking the prime minister questions. So, you know, they're going to have to find a way going forward because this is not going away and parliament has to start sitting. Parliamentarians, please do your job. All right, guys, I got to wrap it up there. Uh, first of all, uh, Dr. Karamanting, always great to have you on the program, not only uh, for your insight, but because you clearly have the most comfortable chair any of us have ever had on this program, and we're all jealous. Uh, <laughs> Joyce and Tanya are going to stick around for the second round. Coming up, what will Justin Trudeau include in the much-anticipated speech on the throne? Will the government give the provinces those billions of dollars more in health care? And remembering John Turner. The Scrum returns next. Our special guest will be the former finance minister, John Manley. Stay right here with Question Period. Well, in just three days' time, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will unveil his plan to get the country through a possible second wave of COVID-19, get the economy back on track. No pressure there. What will the plan look like? Will it include things like a universal basic income? Or will it meet the Premier's Friday demand for a $28 billion health care transfer increase annually? Former Prime Minister, of course, in the meantime, John Turner has passed away yesterday at the age of 91. I want to talk about his legacy. How does it resonate today as well? So let's bring back the scrum. Joyce Napier is back. Tony McCharles is back. And our special guest in this round is the former Liberal Deputy Prime Minister and former Finance Minister, uh, John Manley. Mr. Manley, uh, great to welcome you to the panel. Let me just start with you about Mr. Turner. You were both Finance Ministers. Uh, when you look back at his extraordinary life of public service, what lessons did you take from Mr. Turner? Well, first of all, he was in politics for all the right reasons. Uh, he saw it as a vocation. Uh, remember, he was there a long time. He may not have been prime minister for very long, but he served Canada with distinction for a long time and left without any, any taint of, of scandal whatsoever. Um, he, was, uh, he had it all in many ways, uh, except for final electoral success as leader of the party. Yeah, pretty extraordinary life, uh, Tonda. I mean, there. I think Mr. Manley put it right. He had, there's a many chapters. You know, he came in in the so-called Camelot era, as they, they used to call it, with uh, Pierre Trudeau. And then uh, he quit. He came back. And then, of course, I'll just show one clip. We could, we could have picked many. Here's that a, a famous clip on the election he lost to Brian Mulroney in that landslide. And, and remember this, uh, one of these iconic moments. I've told you and told the Canadian people, Mr. Mulroney, that I had no option. Well, Truman, your next you, question, you had an option, sir. You could have said, I am not going to do it. This is wrong for Canada, and I am not going to ask Canadians to pay the price. Okay, so, Tonda, when you look at him, I mean, there's just one moment, the epic battles over free trade. What stands out to you about the legacy of Mr. Turner? You know, I think that it, it's remarkable that he came back from a defeat to rebuild and work on rebuilding the Liberal Party. And I think what's really notable, and you've heard his friends and family talk about that, and even some of the best tributes to him yesterday came from his foes, his political enemies, Brian Mulroney and Jean Chrétien, in a way. And they they, their tributes to him embraced his career as a House of Commons man. And I think that John put his finger on it, leaving office, having done the hard work without a trace of scandal and leaving, you know, with a legacy. I think that that says a lot about the man. That's what I take away. He himself 
valued his contribution to democracy building in Ukraine, for example, and some of the other things that people may not even remember. Legal Aid, Official Languages Act, those are big things. Yeah, yeah. and he accomplished a lot as the, as the former Justice Minister, Joyce. Of course, there. I mean, there's a lot to a, a legacy that's been a, a decades in politics. The infighting of the 80s, the, the, the difficulty fighting deficits in the 70s. What stands out for you? How did it sort of set the tone today? Well, you know, he was a very liked uh, politician on Parliament Hill, which is, you know, unanimously. Uh, the, the journalists liked him because he was a gentleman. Um, you know, he was a, a guy's guy, but he was also a true, a true gentleman. You know, when they went low, and God knows they went low on him, he never did. Um, you know, he, he probably has known more defeats in, in his political career um, th than victories, really. Um, you know, he, he, he won the leadership, but he lost two elections. And, you know, his own party uh, didn't backstab him in 1988. They actually frontstabbed him. Uh, he knew who they were, and they were a lot of them were Jean Chrétien's supporters. But he remained, you know, classy, and he remained a gentleman through that. And, you know, he earned right. the respect that he deserves after he left politics, really, rather than when he was in politics and kicked around by his own people. Um, you know, there's a lot of legacies of, uh, of John Turner, but here we are. There's another liberal government today, Mr. Manley, and, and they're wrestling with deficits of $350 billion. They got a speech from the throne coming up on Wednesday. The premiers are asking for $28 billion a year for health care. There's demands for pharmacare, basic income. Uh, first of all, what do you make of the premier's demand, and what do you think the biggest challenge for Justin Trudeau in the speech from the throne is going to be? Well, of course, premiers asking for money for health care is not exactly a new song on the hit parade. We've heard that many, many times before. It's a recurring thing. They pick health care because they know the public likes it. And yet, uh, you know, sometimes the money doesn't all go into health care. You know, ask Paul Martin what happened to his famous solution for a generation on health care. So uh, the problem is, of course, that we've got special costs associated with COVID. And uh, the federal government has borrowing capacity that the provinces don't have. So I think some of those needs are going to be essential. Uh, my hope is that uh, there be conditions that see uh, really uh, ramped up testing and tracing capabilities if more money goes to the provinces for health care. Hmm. Tonda, what did you make of the, the premiers on the Hill demanding that money? And what do you think you're going to see in the speech on the throne? Look, I think that the premiers, you know, tried uh, an effective political uh, event stunt, if you will, coming to Ottawa. They got the attention of everybody in the press gallery. It's slow days. Everybody doesn't know what's going to be in the speech from the throne. But I think you'll see the speech from the throne go beyond just the immediate crisis of COVID, which is what the government's going to put the huge emphasis on because that's what people care about. But it will, uh, I think, flag what kinds of income supports they're going to do in the medium term to help, not just income for individuals, but support for businesses, hard-hit sectors to get through the pandemic and the fallout. That will be months out. And then they will reach out into the future in terms of laying out what they're going to do on a green, clean energy transition agenda. All right, Joyce. I mean, look, uh, the premiers say universal pharmacare is not going to count on this First of all, does the Prime Minister deliver on that, any of those demands, and what do you expect to see on Wednesday? I, I don't expect to see pharmacare in there. Maybe a promise, a vague promise in the future to have a pharmacare program, but that may have been a priority, you know, seven and a half months ago. It isn't right now. 
uh, the money for health care, he's going to have to deal with that. I know that people say, uh, smiling, of course, the, the premiers come in hat in hand and they want more money for health care. Well, you know, they've been asking for that for years and they should get it. I don't know what amount uh, of they should get, but they should certainly get an increase, especially now. So their ask right now is, is, is a burning ask. Uh, he's gonna, it's a balancing act, this, uh, this speech from the throne, because the grandiose ideas, the green reform that they wanted to put on the table cannot be right now, but it has to be mentioned. So they have to be grandiose and they have to be pragmatic at the same time. And yes, as Tonda says, take care of those Canadians who will be off CERB and into the employment insurance uh, program. So it's, it's going to be a true balancing act. Yeah, it certainly will, with a lot of demands. Uh, guys, i got to leave it here on a Sunday morning. Mr. Manley, great to have you on the program. Sorry for the loss Thank of your you friend, uh, John Turner, of course. Joyce and Tonda, great to have you here. Look, folks, it's been a difficult number of days. Two icons around the world have passed. Here in Canada, the loss of John Turner. And in the U.S., Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They defined their times. They serve passionately. They both serve with dignity. They had opponents, but they didn't have enemies something leaders today maybe could think about. Our thoughts are with their families. And by the way, on a very different note, we want to say goodbye to our wonderful senior producer, Kieran Rines. There's no smarter or harder working or more decisive, organized producer in the business. For the last few years, she's steered the QP ship with calm leadership. Kieran, it's been an honor working with you. From all of us, thanks so much and good luck in your next chapter. And for those of you celebrating the Jewish New Year, Shana Tova to a sweeter, healthier, and less unsettling year ahead. And happy 16th birthday to my son. Love you, bud. Thanks all of you for watching. We'll be back here in seven short days.